0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Confession is a necessary habit to have in our walk with Christ. It's something that can be uncomfortable or bring up feelings of guilt and shame. Even though we may be hesitant to confess our sins, He reminds us in His Word how vital confession is to our relationship with Him. In Psalm 51, David comes in full surrender bringing his sin, shame, and guilt to God, asking for a renewed spirit and a cleansed heart. Join us in a new series titled, Confessions, Erasing Shame and Experiencing Renewal, where we'll learn why practicing confession is so important.
1: But Hopefully you have a Bible and you found Psalm 51. We're going to be digging into the first six verses today. In uh, Back in 2019, I was having some medical issues and uh, I, I decided to... Uh, on the recommendation of my doctor to go visit a specialist to kind of look into it a little bit more. And uh, after running several tests, uh, he kind of came back to me and said, I don't think this is that big of a deal. Uh, Here's some over-the-counter medication that you can take. I think it'll it'll be fine over some time. Um, The problem was it didn't get better. Um, Those issues kept getting worse and kept bothering me and kept affecting my quality of life. Um, until finally last summer, it got to the point where I went to see another specialist and she said, oh no, we got to go and do surgery and deal with this. And, uh, and she did. And I found, uh, some relief and it was great and I'm all better now. Um, but through that process, I've, I've learned something that was really important, which is this, that the diagnosis that's given determines the remedy that you seek. So early on, I got the diagnosis, this isn't a big deal. This will go away with time, no biggie. And I adopted that, right? I just kind of, yeah, this will get better. This will be fine. I kind of learned to live with what I was struggling with until it wasn't when I finally went to the doctor and said, no, we actually need to deal with this. And this is actually the problem. When you get the wrong diagnosis, that can lead you to seek remedies that are ineffective, that don't actually deal with the problem. That's why when we go to the doctor, we anticipate they will give us the right diagnosis so that we can take the right path to deal with the problem that we face. This reality isn't just true when it comes to our physical bodies, but I think this reality is actually also true for our souls as well, and our spirits. We all recognize that we have problems in our lives, that something isn't right, that there are things that are off. Probably all of us can resonate with the words of the Apostle Paul when he wrote to the Roman church and said, for I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Who doesn't resonate with that? There's things I don't want to do, and I end up doing them, and there's things I do want to do, and I don't do, and it always seems like we have a problem. And the truth is that all of us throughout our lives have blown it at one time or another. We've all done things we're not proud of, hurt others, Engage some form of injustice, been dishonest, done what we've wanted at the cost and expense of someone else. In short, we all have a problem, but the question is, do we know what the problem is? Do we have the right diagnosis for it? Because if not, we won't look for the right remedy. And if we don't look for the right remedy, then we won't actually experience the renewal and healing for those things that we desire. We're in the middle of this series called Confessions where we're looking at Psalm 51 which was a psalm written by David after he had took Bathsheba and murdered her husband or had plotted to have her husband murdered. <laughs> David blew it about as bad as you can and yet he experienced renewal in his life and in his relationship with the Lord. And he wrote Psalm 51 as a way to help others know how they can experience renewal and healing from God in light of the times when we blow it. The story of David here, it's almost like a test case for us, right? If you ever done anything where you do a test case, it's to look at something so that you can learn from it and how to apply it to your life or your world or your experience. That's what the story of David is like. It's meant to help you think through, how can I experience renewal in my life in light of the journey and moment in the life of David? Last week, we saw that you and I can have hope of experiencing renewal because of God's character and power. That's the starting point for David and for us. If God is not gracious and merciful, and if he's not able to do anything anything about our problems, then we're stuck. But Brandon did a great job last week helping us see the first couple verses of Psalm 51 that God is in fact gracious. And he does have the power to do something about our problem. But again, what actually is our problem? If we're to seek a remedy, then we have to make sure we have the right diagnosis. And this is where David goes next in the journey of confession and renewal. Because part of confession and renewal means that we have to take responsibility for our sin. Now, that's a super churchy word, right? When we use that word, and it's kind of thrown around church and culture a lot of times, I wonder if we actually have the right framework, the right understanding, the right diagnosis. And so I think before we can even ask the question of how we can take responsibility for our sin, I think we first need to step back and ask a deeper question. What is sin? What is it that we're actually dealing with? So I'm going to deviate a little bit from the outline in your bulletin to kind of go back into one and two and kind of lead us in. Because what I want you to realize is that I think what David gives us in these first six verses is what sin is and what sin means. And I think it helps us actually see our problem clearly. So first, what is sin? We saw some of this last week from Brandon, but I kind of want to revisit it a little bit because I think it's really key for our understanding. So look with me at Psalm 51, starting in verse 1. Have mercy, or be gracious to me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So in Psalm 51, David uses... Three different words to describe his sin. And it's these words that actually help us begin to understand what sin is. The first word he uses, is he asks God to blot out my transgressions. Transgressions is the Hebrew word pasha. And pasha is actually the violation of relationship. That's what it's rooted in. The idea of pashah is when two parties violate the agreement that they have together. The idea of pashah would be like if your kid came to you and you said, hey, go clean your room, and they said, forget you, I'm not going to listen to what you say. And you say, hold on, I'm the parent here, right? That's pashah. It's relationship violating rebellion. That's the idea. David says, blot out that reality from my life. The second word he uses is he says, cleanse me from my, or wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. This is the Hebrew word avon. Avon is built out of the root in Hebrew avah, which means crooked or bent. It's something that's been twisted or perverted from what it should be. But in avon, it not only carries the idea of crookedness or perversion but it's also that which results in the guilt and punishment that comes from that perversion. It carries all of that. So it's the crime and the guilt and the punishment. That's avon. And David says, wash me from my avon. And then the last word he uses is the Hebrew word chata which is the most common word for sin in the Old Testament. And it's the idea of missing the mark or the goal. What's the mark or the goal? Well, God created the world to operate a certain way. We've used that word many times. The Hebrew word shalom kind of gathers that. We translate it peace, but it really means harmony and flourishing. God created the world with shalom, a certain way for it to be in which justice and righteousness and flourishing were all was present. Chata is to miss that, to do something that goes against the way God intended for things to be. It's an offense. So David says, Cleanse me from my chata, from my shalom-violating offenses. So when you realize what David's doing here is he's really unpacking sin in a much deeper way than even sometimes. I think we've kind of used these churchy words and we lose some of the heart of what he's trying to get at behind it. So listen to verse 1 and 2 again, and I'm going to give you my translation. Trying to get at a little bit of what I think the heart is underneath the original Hebrew. Be gracious to me, God, according to your chesed, according to the abundance of your mercy. Erase my relationship-violating rebellion. Completely wash me from my guilt-staining, punishment-deserving perversion, and from my shalom-destroying offense. Cleanse me. See how David sees his sin. See the depth that he goes to describe it. It's not just a mistake. It's not an oops. It's not, oh, I just messed up. It's something deeper, something more. If I were to give you a definition of sin built out of how David describes it here, I would say sin is any act, that means thought, desire, emotion, word, or deed, or its absence that rebels against God's authority by perverting his world and destroying shalom. Sin isn't just a matter of what we do, it's also a matter of what we fail to do in response to God's authority, meaning we're created as God's image bearers to bring shalom to the world, to extend harmony and flourishing. And yet, sin is when in our rebellion and perversion and offense, we turn from our design and in our pride, we end up destroying God's world and offend and rebel against him. When the Apostle Paul would say to the Roman church in Romans 3, all of sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is the reality he's talking about. This is what sin is. It's total and pervasive. And David recognizes that. So as he labels his sin, he asks God to deal with it by erasing it, washing it, cleansing it. And then in verse 3, he goes even deeper to give the reasons for why he is asking. So he's given us the what of sin, But now he moves into the heart of his diagnosis. What sin means. What does it mean for you and I? And three things I think that he points us to of what sin means for us. First, the reality of sin, that we all have it, means our lives are marked by guilt and shame. Look what David says in verse 3, right? So wash me, cleanse me, for or because So he's giving you his reasoning, because I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. David begins the reason why he's asking God to erase and wash and cleanse him from his sin. And the first reason is that he is riddled with guilt and shame. He says, I know my transgressions. The literal, the verb there is actually continuous in action. It means I keep knowing. Meaning it's conscious to me all the time the reality of my, that word transgression, of my rebellion, my relationship violating rebellion, the actions I take against you. For David, this is guilt, right? Guilt is transgressions. It's I've done something wrong. I've come against your rule and your way. And he says it's always on my mind. Have you ever done something wrong and you just can't let it go. Like you try to, you try to forget about it, you try to move on, you try to tell yourself it's not that big a deal, who cares? And yet it kind of like keeps plaguing you in the back of your mind. You know what's wrong, you know what's wrong, you know what's wrong. That's guilt and that's what David says. This guilt is my reality and it's conscious to me. As much as I try to escape it, it's still there. And that's true for us. As much as we try to escape it, because of our sin, we still experience the nagging reality of guilt. But it's not only guilt that he's marked by, it's also shame. That's why he says, My sin, right? So there's my shalom destroying offenses, is in front of me constantly. He missed the mark, he didn't measure up. He's inadequate and insufficient. Guilt is the reality that I've done wrong. Shame is the reality that I am wrong, that I do not measure and hit the mark. And David says, that is my constant reality. Because of my sin, I am riddled with the reality of shame. It's always in front of me. And that's true of shame. This is exactly what shame feels like. In the reality of our shame, it feels like it's the only thing we can see sometimes, and it's the only way people can see us. And David says, it's always there. I'm marked by it. And the truth is, all of us, every single one of us, can identify with David here because our lives are marked by guilt and shame as well. Professor Lewis Smeads tells a story that I think highlights this in one of his works. He talks about a famous psychologist who worked for the Soviet Union under the reign of Joseph uh, Stalin. And this psychologist was well known at being able to get confessions out of anybody, even people who didn't commit the crimes. And one day they came to him and they asked him how he was able to do this and get people to confess to these things that that they tried to keep secret or, or didn't even do at times. And he said, oh, it's easy. I just follow the Mongolian peasant hypothesis. And they're like, what is that? And he told this story. He said, imagine you bring someone into a room and in front of them is this elaborate, nice desk, all laid out. And on the desk is a small red button. And you go to the person and you say, listen, if you will press this button, I will give you $10 million right now. But here's the catch. When you press this button, there's a peasant in Mongolia that will die. You don't need to know why, The state deems that that's what's necessary. All you have to do is press this button. You walk out of here $10 million richer. He says, so the person presses the button who doesn't want the $10 million, and they go back home with a loaded bank account. But weeks go by and months go by, and eventually the reality of what they've done they can't let go of, and they end up taking their own life. And when they go and look in the bank account, none of the money has been spent And the psychologist says, every single person has a Mongolian peasant. They've got someone they've hurt, someone they've wronged, somewhere they've failed, somewhere where they have a guilt or shame that they try to hide in the back. And he says, what I do is I just press and press and press until I find it. And when I do, that's when they're willing to confess anything. And it's a great illustration because it's true. We all have the things in the back, that we're like, I don't want anyone to know that. I don't want that reality to be there. And we we try to hide it or cover it up or move it, but the reality of our guilt and shame still plagues us, and we feel it, and we recognize it. And the constant presence of guilt and shame speaks to the reality that we're marked by sin, Our hearts burn for relief. We desire for something to deal with what plagues us in the quiet of the night. And as much as we try to cover it up, pretend it's not there, excuse it by looking at those who are worse than us, numb it with our indulgences, the quiet unspoken truth of humanity is that we all feel it. We all feel guilt and shame. As much as we try to pretend like we don't, we do. Part of David's confession is admitting that reality. That the reality of sin means we're marked by guilt and shame. But there's a second thing that he shows us in what sin means. See, the reality of sin also means that our core problem is our rebellion against God. Look what he says next in verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So as David moves into the reasoning for God, this is why I need you to cleanse me and heal me. What he gives them is that because my sin is ultimately against you, he locates the core issue of his sin in his relationship with God. He uses that same language of missing the mark. Who sets the mark? God does. And he's offended him by destroying the very shalom that God has created him for. He says, I've done what is evil, what what is bad or wrong, what is anti-God. This is what I have done. But notice his emphasis, even as he confesses the reality of what he's done. I've done this against you alone or you only. Now, at some point you go, um, David, I'm pretty sure that's not the case. Like, wasn't, I mean, there was Bathsheba and I, I think Uriah would probably argue that your sin wasn't just against God alone, considering he's dead now. So what do you mean it was against God alone? Well, I think David in some ways is being a little bit hyperbolic with his language, but he's trying to make the point and recognize that the core issue of his sin, and consequently yours and mine, is ultimately his rebellion against the Lord. This is why when we looked at 2 Samuel 12, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. Because the truth is, all the sin we commit against one another, all the brokenness that we experience in our lives and in the world, ultimately finds its root in our rebellion against God. It's from there that everything else falls out. Francis Schaefer, the great apologist of the 20th century, makes this note in his work, The God Who Is There, one of his classic works. He writes this. When man fell, various divisions took place. The first and basic division is between man who has revolted and God. All other divisions flow from that. We are separated from God by our guilt, true moral guilt. Hence, we need to be justified upon the basis of the finished substitutionary work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet, it is quite plain from the scriptures and from general observation that the separations did not stop with the separation of man from God. For secondly, man was separated from himself. This gives rise to the psychological problems of life. Thirdly, man was separated from other men, leading to the sociological problems of life. Fourthly, man was separated from nature do you see where he locates the reality of the divisions that we experience and the problems in our world all other divisions flow from our rebellion against God what do you see as the core root of your struggle and sin the main issue of your problem or maybe let me ask you this what do you think our culture would say about David's sin and what it means. I think our culture might say, well, I think David means, sin means, he probably just grew up in a bad environment. His parents probably didn't love him enough. Probably had a hard home life. Probably was tough. Didn't get his needs met enough. And so when the time came, he tried to take for himself what it meant. Probably rooted something in his environment or culture or what happened around him. Or maybe our culture would come along and say, actually, the real problem for David is psychological. Psychological if he had a better understanding of himself, if he recognized his true unresolved conflicts and desires, then he wouldn't have done what he had done. But because he didn't, that's what really caused him to lash out. Or maybe it's systemic. David had too much power. We should never give too much power to one person, one group, one entity. That's ultimately the root issue of why David would do this. But what does David say is the core root of his sin? Well, he says it clearly. It's his rebellion against God. It's not that other things aren't a factor. It's not that the environments that we grow up in don't influence the choices that we make. It's not that we're not broken within ourselves and need to understand unresolved conflicts or desire. It's, it's not that there's not systemic brokenness or issue. What David recognizes is it's not that they're not the problem. Those things aren't the core of the problem. The core of the problem is, is we have turned away from God. We have rebelled against him, which means the issue of our sin is first an issue and primarily an issue of our relationship with God. We do everything we can to not deal with that reality. This is why we elevate ourselves. This is why we push blame on other people. But the core issue of our sin is a personal problem in our rebellion against our creator. And so when it comes to confession, David recognizes, yes, I sinned against Bathsheba. Yes, I sinned against Uriah. But all that flows because first and foremost, I had turned from you. I had rebelled against you, my God who made me and called me into relationship. See, the reality of our sin means our core problem is ultimately our rebellion against God. And David's going to move on. We're going to come back to the second half of verse 4 because it helps us see the remedy for our diagnosis. But before that, I just want to see one more reality that David points to in our sin in verses 5 and 6. Because he not only recognizes the reality of our sin, means we're marked with guilt and shame and that our core problem is our rebellion against God. He also recognizes that the reality of sin means we are born under it. Verse 5 Behold, or you could say, pay attention, listen up. I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. He comes back to that language, both of guilt staining, punishment deserving perversion, and shalom destroying offenses. And he recognizes that those things were present from his birth, but he even looks further back than that and locates the presence of these reality from his very entrance into existence, his conception. And so he sees that what sin means is not just an issue of what he has done, but it is at the very core of who he is as a human being. Stanley Walters wrote a fascinating article in the Calvin Theological Journal where he rewrote Psalm 51 in uh, the first-person voice of David. And I think in many ways he kind of gets at what David says here in that article in one section when he writes this. He's using David in the first person here, right? So he says, in my mind, I move as far back in my life as possible, and I find there prior to my sinful actions something deeper, more pervasive, so close to me that I link it with my very conception and development as a human being. This sin is not an act, but a feature of my humanity. This sin is not an act, but a feature of my humanity. From conception, we are born into sin. This is a key doctrine of the Christian faith often referred to as the doctrine of original sin. And what David attests to here, we see in other places attested to throughout Scripture, that you and I are born under sin. Because of the fall of Adam, we have inherited both his guilt and his corruption in such a way that every single one of us from the very beginning are tainted by sin. Another way to say it is, you are not a sinner because you sin. You are a sinner, and therefore you sin. From the get-go, you are born into sin. This is our reality. And it's what keeps us from being able to experience the flourishing life that God ultimately designs for all people. David recognizes that God's desire in a beautiful way, he says, behold, you desire to teach me in the inward being, in the core of who I am, in the secret heart, those secret places of my soul, you want to teach me your truth and your wisdom, the way to live. God is not interested when it comes to who we are as human beings trying to get us to externally conform to his rules. That's how we think of him too often. God isn't coming and saying, here's all the rules that you need to follow. No, his desire is to teach us and give us his heart. Parents in the room, do you desire for your kids to just obey your rules for the rest of your life? Or do you desire for them to learn from you and share your heart so they go on to flourish and live in who they're designed to be? I don't want to spend the rest of my life telling my kids to put their dishes in the dishwasher. I want them to just get to the point where they recognize that part of a good human existence is taking responsibility for your environment and cleaning up after yourself. I don't want them to have to go, follow my rules. And it's the same with God. It's why at the very beginning, he only gave us one rule. Don't eat of the tree. Flourish, live, enjoy, create, enjoy all of it. But why don't we? Because of our sin. It's our sin that keeps us from experiencing the flourishing that God has for us. You and I have a problem. And the truth is, sin is a pervasive reality that destroys the very essence of our relationship with God and therefore overflows into corrupting all of us so that our world is fallen and broken as well. And so it's here, right here, that you get the diagnosis You and I have a sin problem. We are rebels who pervert God's world and destroy His shalom. And the worst part is, there is nothing you can do about it. That's the diagnosis. That's what David recognizes. The reality of what he had done is in actions, he goes all the way back and recognizes, I had a problem from the very beginning, and I couldn't do anything about it. Which is why he casts himself on God. Seeing the severity of our diagnosis and the reality of our sin is important for the remedy that we seek. Right? Imagine it like this. Imagine that you were having some health issues, so you went to the doctor. And they ran a whole bunch of tests on you. And eventually they come back and they sit down and they look at you and they say, hey, here's the deal. We discovered that you have a major issue in your heart. And the reality is there is nothing we can do to fix it without giving you a new heart. Like that's what you need a heart transplant. Now, if that was the diagnosis, how do you think you would respond to the doctor? Do you think you'd be like, cool, thanks, doc. I'm out of here. See ya. Do you think you'd go and look back at the doctor and say, hey, doc, um, how about I, I'm, I'm going to really try to work on eating better and maybe exercising a little bit more, maybe take a little bit more aspirin. We'll see maybe if that, that helps. Like, so I'll just work a little bit harder. Maybe I can heal it that way. Like At some point, the doctor's going to be like, are you, not, are you not listening to what the reality is? And the problem is, oftentimes when it comes to the reality of our sin, we misdiagnose ourselves. So we fall into the trap and reality of our sin that says, eh, it's not that big a deal. I'll just I'll hide it. I'll put it away. I'll cover it up. I'll minimize it. Not that big a problem. Just keep living my life. Or we go the opposite. I'll just work a little bit harder. Maybe if I'm a good Christian, maybe if I live my life, maybe if I follow the rules, maybe if I do everything that's right, then that can make up for this feeling and this mark and this reality. But at the end of the day, what we've realized is we've misdiagnosed ourselves. We have a sin problem, such a deep problem, we can't do anything about it. And so if you're in that situation with the doctor, you look at him and you say, Do whatever I got to do. When's the surgery? Fix my heart. Give me something new. Save my life. And that's exactly how we're called to approach the Lord in the reality of our sin. Because at some point, you have to recognize you don't have the ability to save yourself because your sin is that pervasive. And so what you have to do is cast yourself on the mercy of God and say, would you do something for me that I cannot do for myself? And that's exactly what David does. And the hope for this passage, because you might be thinking at this point, what hope do I have if sin is this bad? David gives you the hope right in the middle of verse 4. Remember, he's giving you his reasons for why he's asking God to cleanse him. And one of his major overarching ones that's pervasive throughout is the deadly reality of his sin. That you and I do not have the resources to deal with our relationship-violating, shalom-destroying, guilt-staining, punishment-deserving, sin. That we deserve death. That's one reason why he needs God's mercy. But there's a second reason. You see it in verse 4 when he gives his reasons. He says, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that, in order that, here's your reason you may be justified. Or another way you could say it is, you may be righteous in your words and blameless in your judgment. Why does David see that God should cleanse his sin in order to show himself righteous? Well, David's hearkening back to the reality of God's covenant with him. God's righteousness is often seen in his saving righteousness in response to the covenant reality that he makes with people. So David's saying, yes, God, cleanse me. Why? Because my sin is terrible. But cleanse me also so that you would show yourself righteousness and blameless. Show mercy. I'm faithless. I failed. But you're faithful. And you are true. Your love is loyal, it's chesed, it's steadfast, never-ending. So would you show yourself faithfulness or faithful by erasing my sin? What David is doing here is casting himself wholly on the grace and mercy of God. He's recognizing, I don't have anything to contribute. I don't have anything to offer but you're faithful and you're good and you're loyal and you're abundant in mercy and you are the steadfast God. So out of that reality, would you step in, show yourself righteousness and blameless once again, and cleanse me from my sin. What David shows us here is the essence of faith. Faith turns from the place of trying to save oneself clean oneself up a bit. It's honest about the depth and reality of our sinfulness, and it casts itself wholly on the mercy of God, saying, would you save me? And the good news of the gospel is God has done exactly what is necessary to save us, that he sent his son Jesus to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins, to pay the price for what we have done wrong, so that our relationship-violating rebellion would be covered up, so that our guilt-staining, punishment-deserving perversion would be made straight, and so that the way we had missed the mark, we would be elevated back to the very thing we were created for, to be image-bearers in Christ, to restore shalom. This is what Jesus has come to do. And so, yes, confession requires that I take responsibility for my sin. Be honest with yourself. The more you mask and pretend you aren't as sick as you really are, the less you will look for the true remedy. But when you realize how sick you truly are, then you will cast yourself wholly upon Jesus because confession also means I must look only to him and to his grace for my salvation. It's to say, give me a new heart. This is where David's gonna go. This is why he's gonna say, create in me a clean heart. We've turned that into some nice little look, create in me a clean heart. David's like, God created me. I can't create that in myself. I can't do that. My sin's so pervasive. You gotta step in, and just like you breathe life in creation, you gotta breathe something in this dead heart for me to come back to life. That's how bad his sin is, and that's how bad your sin is, and my sin is. It should cause us to throw ourselves wholly on God and say, you do something out of your grace and mercy, because it's the only hope I have. That's what he's done. Do you live with that sense, though? Do you live with that sense of casting yourself? Are you still trying to clean yourself up? Are you still trying to pretend like it's not there? Or do you by faith throw yourself wholly on Jesus Christ and say, you are my salvation. You are my righteousness. You are my justice. You are my covering. That's what faith does. And that's what we're about to do together right now as a church family. Communion is the time where we gather together and we remember that Jesus gave his body as a sacrifice for our sins, that he died for our sins. And he shed his blood so that we might be in covenant relationship with him forever. Not based on our faithfulness, but based on his. And communion is when we as the church, as a community, come together to once again remind ourselves we are wholly dependent on the work of Jesus Christ for our salvation. It is a confession of faith in him. So if you've never put your faith in Jesus before, we would invite you to use this time as a time to contemplate taking that step because that's the only hope we have is what he's done for us. But if you have, if you have, then this is the time where we as a community come and recognize our sin is great, but your mercy is greater. Our violations are tremendous but your grace is so much more than that. And you've done everything necessary for me to live an eternal relationship with you. This isn't a trifle act of religious duty. This is a faith-filled step of once again casting our whole selves on the reality of what Christ has done for us. So in light of our sin let's once again recommit our faith in the salvation that's in Jesus Christ. So God, I pray right now as we prepare to take communion together as a church family, that you would do two things. One, that you would continue to remind us of the true nature and reality of our sin. Help us, oh God, to have the right diagnosis. Don't let us pretend if we're hiding We're trying to earn, turn us from that place. Help us to see that we are sin sick to the point of death apart from you. But then also use this as an opportunity to remind us that there is grace and there is mercy, that it's not found in ourselves. It's not found in us getting everything right. It's only found in your grace, which is a work that you do for us. It is an unmerited favor that we find our salvation so stir our faith and trust in jesus fix our eyes to look to him the author and perfecter of our salvation turn us from ourselves and by faith help us to cast wholly ourselves on him and his work alone and even now to declare that to one another through this act so we ask you to move holy spirit now to draw us to your son or to draw us to the father's son That we might be reminded of the salvation that he offers we love you move now we pray in jesus name Amen.
0: thank you for joining us as we study god's word together we would love to hear how god is moving in your heart and get you connected into the woodside bible church family head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today